Nick is an expert in health policy, as most of you would know, public administration, and is a practicing infectious diseases physician. He held a national role in the Australian response to COVID-19 as the Deputy Chief Medical Officer of Australia, becoming one of our most recognised medical spokespeople during the pandemic. During his early years, Nick was a field doctor for Medicine Sans Frontiers and practised in the Republic of Congo, Chad and Defer. Later, he became president of the Australian section of MSF and he has also served on the board of CareFlight. Nick is now engaged in exploring foreign policy decision-making in health through his doctoral thesis at the Australian National University. He is a clinical associate professor at the ANU Medical School and educates young clinicians from medical students through to physician trainees. Michael is not only the president of MDA National, but he is a very busy obstetrician and gynaecologist in private and public practice in Perth. He is also head of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynaecology at St John of God Subiaco Hospital, where interestingly, he was also born. Dr Gannon works in perinatal loss service at King Edward Memorial Hospital and is the RANSCOG representative on the WA Perinatal and Infant Mortality Committee. In his early year, Michael had fellowship training at the Rotunda Hospital in Dublin and St Mary's Hospital in London. I now hand it over to Michael to have a conversation about Nick's early career. Thank you, Kim, for the introduction and welcome members and colleagues across Australia. And uh, welcome to you, Nick. Thank you for offering up uh, your time. Tonight's all about you and we're interested in hearing about your journey all the way from being a junior doctor, those specific insights and interesting direction your career has taken since then. So, Nick, first of all, tell us, what are some of the challenges you faced as a junior doctor? How did you overcome those challenges? Uh, and perhaps to finish off a three-part question, what would you advise uh, young Nick if you had the chance to talk to him now? Or younger Nick, maybe, I should say. <laughs> yeah, well, Mike, um, firstly, thanks to MDA and, and yourself for the invitation. People may not be aware, but um, you and I were obviously um, over at UWA together. I think um, you probably finished just before I started. But, you know, uh, we are sort of moving through that um, sort of middle phase of, of our careers. So it's, it is a great time and a great opportunity to sort of reflect on, you know, what 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 medicine's brought me, which has been a very uh, privileged and fortunate career, but has caused me the past couple of years to think, think back to when I was a, a junior doctor. I mean, the whole thing was probably best summed up. I, I didn't realise how I felt as a junior doctor until I was a registrar. I think I was an advanced respiratory trainee at Royal North Shore in Sydney. And one of the medical students who had gone through Sydney Uni was on the wards as an intern. I went up to her and said, oh, Zoe, how's it going? And she said, I feel like I'm acting. I feel like I'm making it up. What, I, what I'm doing. And, and that really sort of resonated with me. I remember that sort of deep feeling of uncertainty, you know, when suddenly you go from being the person that kind of just follows along the clinical team and is support, supposed to, by virtue of osmosis, kind of absorb, you know, whatever uh, information you can get as a medical student to then being most of the time a walking signature, but some of the time, certainly when, you know, you're the only person on the ward and your registrar's in theatre and, and your boss isn't around, you're talking to the patients, you're giving them information and and just that sort of imposter syndrome is probably the nice way to to talk about it. And I do think that medicine's a unique career in that people kind of look up to you as the doctor on the ward, but you're sitting there with 
sort of several months experience. And the problem with medicine, of course, is that it does it to you again and again and again every couple of years. And maybe it's the same with every profession, but I just think being a doctor is sort of unique in, in some ways. You know, you finally, when you're a senior resident and you feel as though, you know, everything about the hospital administratively, you can make anything happen. You can you can sort an MRI in half a day and all the interns sort of look at you and go, wow, look at that guy or girl. And, and then, you know, the next year you're a junior registrar and you're just going, oh, my Lord, I'm just back to where it was. <laughs> I'm just back to where I felt as an intern. And then you sort of go up again, you get this sort of sawtooth punctuation to your career where um, you sort of thrust in, in varying levels of certainty and, and uncertainty. And, and it doesn't really change until you're a consultant. And even when you are a consultant, again, you're expected to be the consultant and know everything, but you don't, you plainly don't as a junior consultant. And you have to sort of know where to find the information, but also project enough confidence and the judicious expression of uncertainty to your patients. So I think that's probably a, a useful sort of challenge to present that sort of feeling feeling of uncertainty and, and sort of normalise that because I think we all feel it during our careers. Um, and then the solution to that, if I was sort of giving advice, I would say something that I learnt a bit later on, which is beware the overconfident doctor. You know, it might sound a bit funny coming from me. I'm not, I'm not short of confidence, but I think in my sort of clinical practice, that expression of uncertainty to patients, being clear when you don't know something, being honest about what you can do for them, definitely not making promises you can't keep. That's always a, a real trap for, for young players, I think, on the wards where, you know, even if it's saying, I think you're going to be discharged tomorrow, or we can get an MRI for you tomorrow or, or whatever, people hold you to that sort of stuff. And if you're really confident with the diagnosis, overconfident with the diagnosis or the way you're presenting things to people, that can sort of put people a bit offside as well. So try and avoid that. And I used a term with my physician trainees, the judicious expression of uncertainty, which is sort of what being a physician's all about. Um, really, but it's it's a sort of useful thing, I think, to take with you going forward. So, I mean, there's a lot of sort of challenges that you'll face in your career, but as a junior doctor, I do, I do think that if you can sort of be comfortable as quick as possible with that sense of discomfort, then that will help you in your career. What are some of the other ways to deal with it? Talk to people, talk to your colleagues. I think the concept, um, and Mike, it'd be interesting I mean, you you would have a view on this as well. The mentorship is a is a sort of comparatively new concept. I think you and I probably had a lot of informal mentors, but the idea of having a formal mentor that you go to is a bit new um, over the past five or ten years, and something that I heartily recommend. So even at my stage in my career, I've got a mentor. I've got a couple actually that I go to for formal um, mentorship. Uh, and, and I think that really helps. Um, so there's a, there's a couple of things that can help us get through a difficult time in our careers as a junior doctor. Yeah, thanks for that, Nick. I mean, I, I don't know, I, I doubt this is unique to obstetric practice because I certainly feel it as a gynaecologist as well, but I go through my entire career thinking that I'm somewhere between three hours and three weeks away from being punched in the head again. I think that uh, 
medicines very humbly. Uh, you know, and Kim knows that I delivered a baby in the last hour, you know, so you never quite know how that's going to go. Uh, yeah, these patients are all important and not every birth goes as well as you'd, you'd like it to go. So I think that, uh, I mean, one of the points you very clearly made is that although you have that feeling as a junior doctor, in many ways it doesn't leave you. That humility that you need, uh, and, and perhaps you, you know, raised another point there, that uh, beware the person who seems to be incapable of humility because there might be great insecurities underlying that, even that's not the correct uh, amateur psychiatric diagnosis. They, they might not have the uh, the equipment to deal with complications or deal with things going wrong with their patients. Yeah, yeah, look, absolutely right. And just maybe one last little piece of advice that can be helpful. You know, we are, you are more than me, different specialties, we're, we're all, we've all got our time pressures and there's always, particularly in the public system, um, but you know, I don't do much private medicine, my wife does a lot of private medicine, so it churns through incredible amounts of patients per day. There is a certain art and it's a, it can be a learnt skill as well to making the patient feel like you have given them significantly more time than you have. Now, let me let me repeat that in sort of numbers terms. If you can only give them five minutes, there's a way to make them feel like you've given them 15. Some of the techniques is never say that you've got to go somewhere, learn how to close the conversation, work out what they want as quickly as possible without sort of pushing them through. Not only does it make them feel good, but it actually avoids some problems within the team. And part of that art of communication, you'll hear from MDA all the time, that the doctors who are able to communicate clearly with their patients, make them feel as though they've been heard, are the ones that need to use MDA's services the least. That's great. So, Nick, you've, you've referred to the richness of medical practice and the, the various options that, uh, you know, were available when we were making those decisions. And it seems to be that there's even more opportunities now, but what made you choose infectious diseases as a specialty? Yeah, um, I suppose a couple of things. I I think I think the first thing is, how, why did I want to become a physician? And we, we spoke about informal mentorship. Medicine is like one of the last professional apprenticeships. Maybe, maybe law is the same. I mean, it, it's virtually like a trade apprenticeship in a way. You sort of find someone who you look at and you go, wow, I'd really like to be like that person. And and that person for me was was a guy called Arthur Harris, was endocrinologist at Royal Perth Hospital. Arthur's still around. Arthur beat me six love at his property in Bustleton in a game of tennis when he was 65 uh, and I was his intern. <laughs> Um, but nonetheless, uh, we we digress. That's not. I didn't become a tennis player. I became a physician. Um, Arthur had the most amazing way, bedside way, with patients that that did exactly what I described before. Made them feel as though, even though he was there for literally on a consultant round about two minutes, they absolutely adored him. Just just the way he practiced. So you end up finding someone like that. He was an endocrinologist, but he got was the reason why I went into physician training. And then ID, I just like microbiology and stuff since, I just like bugs since I was at medical school. And, you know, when I did the overseas stuff with um, Doctors Without Borders and, and I did my elective in Africa and, you know, that is just um, tropical medicine central. And every profession's got its cool thing. Obviously, Guyana will have the same, of course, where you just come along and, and you make these hero diagnoses, which are sort of commonplace with within your specialty but other people sort of go wow that's that's impressive id is replete 
with stuff like that with tropical medicine so it's kind of cool when you got people coming back from overseas and you can pick the funny ones like leptospirosis and you know spirochete other spirochete diseases yours and stuff like that so it, there was there was kind of a little bit of the quirky there that attracted me to it as well that's a very interesting answer. I, I remember working with Arthur Harris. Um, Arthur often looked less well than half the patients on your average ward, ward around at Royal Perth, but uh, he, um, he's a good example of someone who brought a great richness of life experience to medicine, you know, so I think that many of us have taken the opportunity to take sideways paths within medicine. Arthur was a farmer before he did medicine, uh, was the legend I was always taught. So people who bring that richness of experience to medical practice are often the often the best doctors. So you, so you, you mentioned him and you've made me think about mine and I, and I do think about them a lot, but you've mentioned mentors, you've mentioned Arthur. Um, can you just perhaps expand on that, other mentors and, and perhaps people who inspired you in a different way at various stages in, in your journey? And, uh, you know, for me, if I reflect, it is when I think of the people who had the greatest impact on my career, it was in it was acts of kindness at various stages in my training, whether that was um, yeah, the intern resident, uh, registrar, or, or even junior consultant level. So perhaps yeah, you, you started to talk at the start of the webinar about how this concept of formal mentorship is probably a bit foreign to people of our generation, but, but different types of mentorship and, and perhaps how people might reflect on how they've received it but not realise that's what it was when they were in the middle of those kind of relationships. Yeah, I mean, I think sort of hard over career to, to to pinpoint it all. I mean, even look, even even more recently, you know, as you, as you go into places that are uncertain in your career, it is worthwhile having some sort of anchor who's done it before, and you know, someone who I I very much look up to as someone who's made that transition um, from clinician to hospital leader. And you know, Mike, I've seen you comment on this. In, many, many times about the importance of actually having doctors who are in administrative positions, senior ones, and running hospitals, uh, because there is something that they get or they add to the richness of the experience that's often dominated by other nursing and allied health professions, and you, you don't have many doctors. So Brendan Murphy's that person for me. In fact, I spoke to him today. We've got a very strong relationship, but I would describe it as a as a mentoring type of relationship. I think those acts of kindness rubbed off, off on um, me as well when I when I sort of received them, and and you will from time to time, and and when you do, you might not even realise you're receiving them. But I I had a registrar who was on nights, uh, and I came on clinical service last week, and they were sort of. Um, describing how you know they just had a baby and they'd you know shifted from one specialty to another and they had to go through basic training and it was all you know I, I didn't have kids when I did my basic training it's a completely different ball game when you do and you've got your primary and your secondary exams and you know at the end of that conversation I well he, he went off shift and then called me about something else and I said look do you want someone to just call now and again as you go through not through the college not through any sort of um, formal mentorship arrangement but I'm happy for you to call me when you when you need to just sit down and debrief about these things because I can see that's a it's a tough journey so, so I think that sort of thing you won't get everybody doing that but you'll experience that um, from time to time in your career and and as as you said Mike um, for you and me that that made a big difference to us just gives you a bit more energy because it can get you down going through medicine and it's a hard grind. Um, but if you've got those sort of what we could say are random acts of kindness now and again from senior colleagues, I think that can make a big difference. 
Yeah, look, just um, to digress ever so slightly, I, I, just to prove that people don't understand medical practice, I've been asked a million times whether I've delivered my own children. And for me, it's a self-evident answer that you don't. But I, I do then respond with saying or asserting very carefully that I got to choose my wife's obstetrician in two different countries. But the obstetrician who I recommended when we came home to Perth was someone who had just been very kind to me on a Saturday morning ward round as a second or third year registrar and just, you know, recognised that my early training had had its challenges and just offered a chat any time. And that was that was an act of kindness, you know, and I didn't need to... I didn't need to take them up on the offer, but it was it was very powerful. Nick, it's, it's hard to look at the future, but um, again, if I want you to reflect on when you were a junior doctor, so so yeah, PGY2, your first year of residency, where did you foresee that you'd be today? Um, I was just I was just trying to get to the next um next level, get across the next next hurdle, and I think you know if I was giving the advice again, as you say, to, to young Nick. Um, would I have done anything differently? I mean, it, it's helped me in good good stead. I, I wasn't a great planner. And when opportunities came up, I kind of took them. But one of the things I did know that I wanted to do was was do the overseas work. Like in the, in the dark days of UWA medicine in the old curricula, um, when you were stuck in Robin's pathology in third year and you just thought this was the worst career decision you'd ever made. Um, the thing that kept me going was I thought, well, I want to practice overseas. And part of it was the humanitarian side. Part of it was an adventure side and, and just a desire to kind of, kind of see the world. So I, that was probably the only, the only thing that I was definitively aiming for in PGY2. I was structuring the career to get to MSF. And then after that, it kind of snowballed in a, in, in a certain direction. So you know, and I, I took advice. I took advice from um, Rowan Gillies, and uh, who was one of the um, international presidents. I was only president of MSF Australia, but he, he was an Aussie who became an international president, and he's a surgeon in Sydney now. And he was my uh, he was one of the surgical advanced trainees on the wards at, at Royal North Shore, and and I overheard him talking about it, and we just had a yarn, and he sort of helped me with a pathway. So again, it's um. It's important to sort of have those moments of reflection in your career. One thing I will say just quickly is the pressures are different now. I think the workforce pressures are harder. Um, and um, But don't let that dissuade you from taking slight early career um, sideways movements. And again, the importance of a mentor means that even if you wanted to go and do MSF or you wanted to go to a different hospital like Darwin Hospital or you wanted to take a couple of years out to do an MBA, I don't know, um, you could do anything. If you've got a mentor that's sort of anchoring you back, then they will help bring you back into the pathway. So it's a sort of counterpoint to the workforce pressures and then just that inexorable desire to to get onto a training program and the so-called tsunami of trainees. And so having, having those senior colleagues who can sort of support you is, is increasingly important where it was, um, it was still important, but I think it was, it was less important 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, Nick, this question's not off the chat, but um, having reflected on third year at UWA, I still haven't seen a patient with amyloidosis. I wonder if you actually have. <laughs> no, I, I'm told they exist, but okay, I haven't right, yeah. Sorry for the private joke for those of you who didn't attend UWA back in the day. I mean, it's just what it's, it's actually interesting the extent to which powerful figures can dominate the medical school curriculum, you know, and therefore they can powerful figures can dominate a culture that might be at hospital level, that might be training program level. So maybe there is a message in that commentary about, about amyloid. So 
Nick, can you talk through some of the challenges you faced as a as a medical practitioner, and particularly as you moved so um, so often? I mean, you've you've practiced in um, numerous different um, states and territories. I never regret uh, the richness of the of the different places that that, that I worked. Um, but you know, in many ways, you I suppose you go back to starting again. So. So you know, I've couched this question in terms of the challenges, but perhaps you, I'm sure you'd be keen to talk about the uh, the positives as well. Just the headline challenges. It's getting to learn new systems. Like you've got to have a certain energy um, for that, and that energy is best found at the start of your career, I think. Um, so it, it's it's easier then. Different places um, is is certainly one of the positives. Different ways of doing things, like even. Even if you're in a single city, um, uh, going that has more than one tertiary hospital, um, going to a couple of tertiary hospitals and and getting a get, getting that richness of experience, seeing how things are done, I definitely tell the guys at Canberra Hospital to you know you can't. It's almost unhealthy to stay at one place for your entire training because um, you just don't see enough perspective. It's hard. You've got to learn. Um, you you got to engage with a lot of new people. You've got to be comfortable doing that. Some people are more comfortable in the space of just getting to know an institution, and that's fine too. If you've say got ten a, a decade um, in for your training, um, and you can you can do it at one institution, but you may want to take a year here and there, six months here and there, um, go experience something else. So you know, going going to lots of different places is not not for everybody. I think um, just to round off on on that with the, the challenges before I get to the positives, I think eventually you want to call somewhere home. You know, I I, I Royal North Shore was home for me. I mean, um, Royal Perth probably um, had just you know, I was an intern there and, and I did medical school there. So that held a special place in my heart. Royal North Shore was definitely home. Um, and then Royal Darwin and um, Canberra Hospital it, it have been hard to sort of develop that institutional connection. And when you're at the, the, the tertiaries that have been around for a long time, like your RPAs, like your Alfreds, um, Royal Perths, all, all that kind of stuff, there, there is lengthy tradition in medicine and of often dynasties of, of medical families. And there was always a certain meaning um, if you were an intern and you would go to Milligan's Bar at Royal Perth. Um, I know we're being UWA centric, but there's other places that, that do this. And you'd have the consultants there and you'd have a bit of a drink with them. And, and there was a real sense of purpose within the medical community. And if you hop around places, um, it, it, it's a bit harder to integrate with that. Look, the, the positives, I think, are summed up in, in one, one sentence. You, you just get to leverage the opportunity of medicine, which is very transferable, at least within the country, if not overseas, um, it can get a bit harder. But just, just to see different places and have different experiences. And, and I've, I've very much enjoyed the opportunity for that. Um, yeah, and again, look, you know, I think that it's important perhaps um, to understand that things do change. You know, the, the collegiality that, that comes from uh, meeting with, you know, three generations of doctors meeting in a hospital bar on a Friday night. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to betray my norms by saying that that was a really important part of my training. And yeah, that's not for everyone. And that shouldn't be the only, that shouldn't be the only way that that uh, mentorship and that intergenerational relationship, those relationships Built, but it's certainly one way. But talking, I suppose that does link into another question I wanted to ask: is that yeah, you know, some of us managed to make a career that's part private sector, part public sector, 
um, uh, you know, I, I, I found my way into into different ways of keeping life interesting through the AMA and through MDA National. Um, yourself, Nick, you've, you've had a very interesting journey. Did you ever point, have a point in your career where you literally did stop seeing patients and then you know, going full-time into the public sector? And if you did, did you miss them? Yeah, yeah, yes and yes. I I mean, it, it, when I was up in Darwin working for the National Critical Care and Trauma Response Centre, one of the good things about going to smaller centres and smaller jurisdictions is is you float to the top pretty quickly. It's a bit like that that guy who won the gold medal in the speed skating, Stephen Bradbury. You know, people just sort of fall by the wayside, they move, they go into senior positions themselves, and suddenly you find yourself running units, running, um, you, you know, organisations like the trauma centre. But the trade-off there, and this is what makes that sort of sustaining the sort of medical culture of institutions difficult, is that you get drawn into the admin side, you get less time for your patients, and it's it's a hard act to juggle, I think. So I definitely started missing them, I think, towards the end of my four-year stint in Darwin, where I was really sort of down to less than 30% clinical. So then I went back to being a staffy at Canberra Hospital, which which was good. But I will say that by the time the DCMO job, I was asked to be seconded over from Canberra Health Services to the Commonwealth um, for that six month period. And, and then as senior advisor for COVID for the year after that, that was a time when I was I was ready to stop seeing patients for a while. And I think it sort of speaks for the people in the audience who perhaps might feel as though they're in a different stage of your career. I think renewal's important whatever stage you're at. And you remember right at the start, Mike, I was saying about that sort of sawtooth, just getting over the hurdles, just getting to the next spot. And once you've done that, suddenly you're in your mid to late 30s and um, you start off on your consultant career and you've got five or 10 years to sort of really earn your stripes as a consultant. If you haven't taken time during that career just to stop and pause and check your own well-being and making sure that all what you're giving is not taking too much away from you, I think, you know, you can find yourself in, in a difficult spot um, from a perspective of burnout and, and mental health um, issues, which I think, you know, it would be fair to say that we will all experience something along the lines of requiring some sort of mental health assistance at some point during our careers. And it's important to, to be open about that. I've had to within uh, just before I was DCMO, actually, it's, it's, it's a topic for another webinar. But it's simply to say that the balance is found by varied experience, but also checking in with yourself now and again, self-reflection, talking to your formal and informal mentors, talking to your colleagues, um, talking to people outside the profession. Is what you are doing fulfilling your career need and making sure you're not, not burning out too much? And usually that answer will um, lead most people to perhaps not as quite as eclectically varied as, as, as some, it's not, not for everybody, the, the hugely varied career, but for almost everybody, some degree of variation within your career is very, very important. You've mentioned your wife's a doctor, my wife's a doctor. Do you think it helps, hinders or otherwise, having a partner, having a spouse who understands the highs and lows of medical practice? Yeah, I mean, I, I probably the most important thing is is having a a, a spouse that um, you love, you're well matched with, and you're happy to share whatever journey um, you've got. And you know, that's that's what I'm lucky enough to have. And 
whether you know they're medical or non-medical you know I think there's pluses and minuses to it I'm in a challenging position with this answer because I am at home and my wife is in the kitchen next door so <laughs> I have to be cautious I think it's very helpful during exam times I, I think there are some unique pressures that um you know that a that a spouse or partner who has done medicine does understand that you know you would i would think you would simply have to make a a stronger effort to ensure that someone who is non-medical understood those uh, and that would be part of the relationship so yeah i i think probably pluses and minuses to to both but um you know, obviously people aren't seeking their spouses simply based on, on what career. Inevitably in medicine, you associate with other doctors, you associate with nurses, paramedics, physiotherapists, and consequently there are a lot of relationships that end up with two health professionals together. Thanks, Nick, for that answer. Do you have any suggestions as to what sort of questions or exercises can be helpful to help foster a strong relationship uh, between mentor and mentee, getting the most from that time? Yeah, and and I think implicit in that question is that um, you know there's there is there is limited time and and you know maybe you're only talking thirty minutes or even fifteen minutes every couple of months or or three to six months. So probably preparation for the conversation is important. You know what a it's not just a good day. How you're going? It's um you know, perhaps it's about the stage you're at with the exams. Um, perhaps you have some uncertainty that you would um, like resolved with career direction. Perhaps it's about an issue of conflict with another uh, senior member of the profession that you'd like assistance um, with resolving. So it will be a whole variety of things. I don't think there's a sort of one size fits all, but probably my advice will be to keep those discussions sort of focused and have something that you would like to get out of it and ask a very specific sort of question when you do have that time because if you're the sort of mentor on the receiving end not only do you usually like to wax lyrical with your with your pearls of wisdom but it's helpful to to keep your own mentor on track as the mentee because you you do want you you know it's not simply about building the relationship it's about a two-way exchange where you're receiving something as the mentee as well so i think that would be my advice just to just to focus the question uh that you you, you want answered so Nick, both you and I have independently talked about acts of kindness and how important they were and instructive and valuable they were for us. What would your advice be for situations where you're on a team with a with a boss who has the view that nobody helped them when they were a, a junior doctor, so why should I help you? And whether this is clinical teaching, professional advice, any any aspect of that. Um, you know, in, in, in my day, we didn't make it to Milligan's Bar for 5pm because we were still putting in drips till 10 o'clock at night. You know, we, we've all heard that attitude. And and if you'll permit this observation, I mean, you know, there was a time when I was AMA president and, you know, I, I had my doctors in training committee telling me that resilience was a dirty word. I think that, you know, especially training in medicine, the practice of medicine demands a certain robustness. Um, uh, I don't think any yep. of us would argue um, other than that. But so, so how do you approach when when people are incapable of that kindness, or incapable of that level of engagement, or incapable of that, or seemingly incapable of that level of consideration of others? 
Yeah. Oh, um, fantastic question. And um, you could we could probably talk for an hour on this because it's a really co complex answer. So the first thing to do is differentiate between what you're receiving is simply someone who has a different way of expressing their emotion. And we all have, um, there are a wide variety of, of personalities with, within um, medicine. So maybe you're not seeing it my, my view has always been that there is something valuable to get out of a senior colleague, no matter what your relationship is with them. So if you, if you approach it with, with that frame, uh, it can sometimes make things um, a little bit easier. And, and that might be, it might be so difficult that you learn what not to do. Um, and you do learn what not to do from senior colleagues. I'm sure people have looked at me on occasion in my career and gone, okay, well, that's not quite the interaction that I would have wanted with with that patient. But so so you're going to learn something regardless. But then the important thing is, you know, is what you're experiencing does that constitute unacceptable imposition on you as someone who's working for them? And then is it bullying? And and this is a spectrum. Um, we've got to acknowledge that. And I really what you're saying about resilience, Mike, it, it really resonates because resilience isn't a dirty word. Resilience is something that we all need. We also need to recognise that someone who's deliberately chipping away at our resilience, that's not okay. That's why, you know, we have the AMA and, and you know, people and culture units within hospitals to 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 assist that, that sort of thing. But you know, nonetheless need to be um, need to be resilient. So I think it can be difficult when you have someone who's perhaps not on the spectrum of overtly kind and overtly understanding and then differentiating between, okay, this person just needs me to get to the job done, between that and um, no, this person is chipping away at my resilience in a way that is, is perhaps um, not appropriate. And we're fortunately, um, I think we're moving in a direction where that latter group is is probably becoming smaller and smaller. Not as quick as you and I would like, Mike, I think, with all the efforts that you and I have put in to that over the years, but probably becoming smaller. Thanks, Nick. Thank both of you very much for your time and your frank conversations and worldly wise advice. Nobody has ever suggested a career in medicine was going to be easy, as we've discussed, but it can be many things. Sometimes just the options themselves can are no doubt overwhelming. But like anything, you put one foot in front of the other, you stay focused while ensuring that wherever possible, you're enjoying yourself and you take care of yourself first and foremost. To our audience, I hope you've enjoyed our webinar with these proud MDA national members that, that we are proud of. Remind yourself that when you make it another 10 years or more down the track, to be kind, as both Nick and Michael have spoken about how kindness of more senior practitioners has made a world of difference.